Well, good morning. It is nine o'clock on a Tuesday morning, and it's time to uh, dive into our series. Waiting for a few folks to show up and let me know that they're here. It is great to see all of you. I, uh, I am loving the fact that we get to get together and uh, spend this time together. So grab a cup of coffee if you don't already have one and uh, find an easy chair. Um, I want to start with a, a personal story. A few years ago, I had the chance to go to, uh, to Great Britain to do a short-term study uh, at the uh, University of Oxford. And uh, I was absolutely in seventh heaven. Uh, if you know me, you know that this, is, this was like the, the moment in life. And I love staying at one of the colleges. Now, admittedly, it was only a smallest college and did not have, you know, terrific grounds and unbelievable dormitories and all the rest. But we, we did eat in a great hall and um, we had uh, discussions out in the garden and uh, one night they left the library unlocked and I spent most of the uh, evening uh, rummaging around in, in the stacks, uh, looking at old documents and the like. It was a, a fabulous opportunity. Anyway, on, on one occasion, on one day, we had a free day and I suggested to some of the school administrators that were there with me that we, uh, we go on a, a bit of a, a field trip. And I took him to a, a very famous pub in town, in Oxford. It's known as the Eagle and the uh, Child. And you should have seen me leading those ladies in, into the very tiny corridors of a very traditional English pub, narrow winding little hallways, wooden benches and chairs stacked on the side. And then suddenly I saw it. Very nondescript plaque on the wall. Uh, that plaque commemorated uh, a weekly meeting of a group called the Inklings. And as I stood there and stared at that little plaque, I took a thousand pictures, half of them with me in it. And then finally I sat down to explain in some detail what all this was about. It was all about a guy by the name of Clive Staples Lewis. You know him as C.S. Lewis. He's a man who, according to one of the scholars of the area, uh, a fellow from the Boston College, he says this, listen to him. He says, C.S. Lewis found time to produce some of the first quality works of literature, of history, of literary criticism, of theology and philosophy, autobiography, biblical studies, fantasy, science fiction, letters, poems, sermons, formal and informal essays, historical novels, spiritual diary, religious allegory, short stories, and certainly children's novels. C.S. Lewis was not a man, Peter Kreff says. He was a world. And I agree. And this morning, he is our fifth sword sojourner that we want to study. A little bit about his background. He was born in Belfast uh, in Northern Ireland in, Ireland in uh, 1898. And his whole life, he loved all things Irish. Uh, me too. But anyway, his dad was an attorney from Wales. 
He had migrated over to Northern Ireland. His mother, who was known as Flora, she came from a long line of, of pastors, people in the ministry. In fact, Lewis was baptized as a baby by his grandfather. Both his mother and his father were absolute avid readers, so it's no surprise that C.S. Lewis learned to read before he was three years old. Three. Um, what's fascinating, too, is that by the time he was five, he was writing and illustrating his own little books. He had a nickname. His nickname was Jack. Uh, he came by that name because he had a favorite old dog who was named Jack. And somewhere along the line, when he was about four years old, he adopted that name and it stuck. Anyone in his family or his friends uh, that knew him well called him Jack. He was not known as C.S. or Clive. He had a, an older brother. Uh, his name was Warren, Warren Hamilton Lewis, but Warren, Warren rather, was always known as Warney. He was a very warm and gentle kind of guy, never married, and uh, lived with Lewis all of his life. His mom died when he was about 10 years old, and he was sent off to a series of boarding prep schools, very much uh, normal for that day and time. Some of his professors were kind and gentle and some were a little weird, one of which actually made his way into a psychiatric hospital. But at any rate, by the time uh, C.S. Lewis was 16, he was enrolled in Oxford. His college life got interrupted with World War I. Uh, he enlisted, he was a second lieutenant in the infantry and was uh, serving in France. There was um, a moment when uh, he's in a foxhole somewhere and a shell, friendly fire from, from the British, exploded uh, prematurely, killed a couple of his buddies and injured him and he had to come home. He came home, he recuperated and then he made his way back to Oxford. He graduated when he finished his studies with what the British would call three firsts. In our, in our uh, system of education, you don't uh, you know, narrow down the scope of your learning until you get to either the master's level or a PhD level. Um, so his first, his narrowed down focuses that he's getting these graduate degrees for are in things like Greek and Latin literature philosophy and ancient history, and English literature. My, what a background to be able to write the kinds of things he did. Soon, as you might imagine, he was lecturing at the university college, and then, after a bit, was made a fellow, a full teaching professor, at Magdalen College, where he stayed for about 30 years, 30 years of teaching in the same place. He only left in 1954, to go become a chair, uh, the head of a department, uh, the head of the chair, or the chair of medieval and Renaissance English literature at the Magdalene College in Cambridge. Two places where I would have loved to have studied. He got to be a professor at both. During World War II, in addition to all of his other responsibilities, he um, made a series of very famous um, wartime radio broadcasts. Um, one writer said about those broadcasts, the war, the whole of life, everything seemed pointless. We needed a key to the meaning of the universe, and Lewis provided that. 
that series, that wartime series that became so famous, uh, was was the uh, fodder for his book, Mere Christianity. Um, a little bit about his personal life. While he was in the army, uh, he made a pact with a buddy. His buddy's name was Patty Moore. And um, he and Patty made a, made a pact that whoever made it back alive uh, would care for the other one's family. Not unusual for military buddies to do that kind of thing. Um, Patty didn't make it. And when C.S. Lewis got back, he took his pack very seriously. He began to care for Patty's mother in a very personal kind of way. Her name was Jane, also known as Janie. Um, Janie was 26 years his, his elder. Um, she lived with Lewis and Warney and occasionally um, some of her other family members uh, until she became uh, totally... Um, incapacitated with dementia and had to go live in a hospital. Uh, even so, Lewis visited her every single day. Um, much has been said about this relationship um, as to whether it was purely platonic and out of a, a sense of duty and responsibility or whether there was some romantic uh, interest there. Hard to know. Uh, it is true that Lewis referred to Janie as his mother in some of his writing but their relationship was very close. Most biographers, though, believe that Lewis just adopted her as, as family and loved having a mother in his life since his, mom, his own mom had gone away so, so early in life. They lived uh, in, a, in a, um, a family home called the Kilns just outside of Oxford. That would be Lewis, Warney, Janie, and some of her family members. Until uh, 1956, and in 1956, Lewis met Joy Davidson. Now, Joy was an interesting woman. Uh, she was an American scholar who was uh, over in Great Britain uh, doing some studying. She had a Jewish background. Uh, she was fascinated, maybe even admired, some say was a communist, um, and she was separated from a very abusive husband. Um, but Joy was Jack's intellectual equal. And my goodness, how he loved having discussions with her. Out of the many hours of the palavering back and forth, a deep uh, and abiding relationship, or friendship at least in the beginning, developed. So when he found that she was going to get deported, uh, out of Great Britain, her visa was up. He uh, he hatched a plan uh, to marry her in a, in a civil union, and thus they were married, uh, so that she wouldn't be deported. But Joy had um, a, a real sense of humor, and a, and a and a great zest for life, a sense of fun, and she drew that out of out of C.S. Lewis. Um, she did, she did come down and was diagnosed with terminal bone cancer. And it was at that point that their friendship uh, and this made-up marriage began to become something much more poignant and, and, and strong. Um, by that time, too, she was officially divorced. And so they married, this time for love. Uh, a friend, a member of the Church of England clergy, performed the marriage uh, in, in the hospital while, while Joy was uh, still in bed and presumed 
that she was going to go ahead and die. But miraculously, the, the terrible bone cancer went into remission. And when it did, they ended up having three marvelous years together. Um, when she did pass away, her death hit Lewis very, very hard. And uh, the book, uh, a, Gr a Grief Observed, uh, describes that bereavement in some very raw and very personal ways. It's a, it's a good read um, and one that gives you an, an inkling into the way he thinks and the way he learned to feel. Now, Joy had two sons um, that, that Lewis uh, went ahead and, and raised after her death. Doug uh, followed in the footsteps of his parents, embraced the Christian faith, and stayed in Great Britain. David um, embraced his Jewish backgrounds, and he went on home to the U.S. It's interesting to think about what kind of a man C.S. Lewis was. What was he like just as a person? He was a lover of solitude. He, uh, he was a I guess you could call him a sedentary scholar. And he was very awkward in social settings. As a professor, as a teacher, as a fellow uh, there at Oxford and eventually in Cambridge, he was expected to attend some you know, social occasions. And, and he was very awkward, always uh, kind of bumping along on the outer wall. Uh, he has very simple, simple tastes. Um, they had a, a little housekeeper that helped cook for them, and and uh, the biographies that tell details. He, he, he was not a guy with expensive taste or, or whatever. He enjoyed his pipe uh, and long walks all around Oxford and then eventually in Cambridge. But what's interesting about him uh, as a bit of a, a recluse, he also had a heart for, for people, for individual people, particularly people who were sick. And he would go and sit for days at the bedside of someone that was, was ill and suffering. And he had a special heart for, for the poor in the community. He was very generous. Um, by all accounts, he gave away about two-thirds of his income uh, on a regular basis. He was a kind and, and cheerful kind of fellow and very, very loyal to his friends. Um, but he had a massive intellect, as you can imagine. Um, the uh, statement, well-read, would, would be like uh, a kindergarten expression in relationship to, to C.S. Lewis. And, uh, and he could be very, uh, let's, see, be, let's be kind here, very assertive um, and, and even combative in some of their conversations with other scholars. But in a classroom... He was in his niche, uh, and, and students have, have remarked that he absolutely came alive. One student in particular described him this way. He was exciting. Vivid images and, and portraits just tumbled out of him. He had no notes. Now imagine that, no notes. And he spoke spontaneously with charm and lilt. His lectures were crowded and students left them with a genuine sense of learning. Wow. The thing that's interesting about his spiritual background is that his conversion to Christianity really took time. It almost came in stages. Um, 
as he worked through the intellectual parts or the theological parts or the religious parts to the time that he finally came to understand it was a personal relationship with Jesus that was, was uh, the focus. Biographers tell us that Lewis accepted the notion of Christianity as a child, probably through the influence of his mother. But at that point, it was just a, a belief system for him, not, not a personal statement of faith. And then came his teen years, and his early teachers influenced him with all of his reading and some of those long discussions that, that really religion, which he dumped Christianity into that pot, was just a, a, a mythology all grown up. And at one point, Lewis even said that he was very angry with God for not existing. But then he met his friends at Oxford, and he began to wrestle with the idea that there was a supernatural deity. And, and he acknowledged that that was a great possibility, and it troubled him. He said, really, at one point, a young atheist cannot guard his faith too carefully. Dangers lie on every side. And then he remarked, terrible things are happening to me. He sensed and, and expressed that, that God seemed to be taking the offensive and chasing after him. One night, a pivotal night in his room, he wrote this, I gave in and I admitted that God is God. I knelt and prayed that night, the most dejected and rejected convert in all of England. He said that he was kicking and screaming, resentful, darting his eyes around the room, trying to find a way to escape. But he marked that evening as the time when he converted to theism, to believing that there was a God. About a year later, having worked through all of these things on an intellectual level, he, uh, he had a long walk with a, with a friend named Dyson and J.R. Tolkien. And after the end of that walk, he declared that his friends were the immediate causes of his own conversion. He had finally and personally come to put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ and him alone. In, in the language that a poet might use, he affirmed that personal belief with, the, with these words. He said, the story of Christ is simply a true myth, M-Y-T-H. He used that word myth as a synonym for story. So Christ, the, the, the story of Christ is simply a, a true story, a myth that's working on us in the same way that other stories do. But with this tremendous difference. It really happened. He embraced the personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And after his salvation, Tolkien was very disappointed that he didn't follow him into the Catholic Church. Instead, uh, Lewis joined the Anglican Church, and he took very great pride in just being an ordinary layman in the Church of England. Now, we probably should take a, a moment or two and talk a little bit about his theology. And scholars love to, to pick it apart. The, the challenge is when you have someone who writes literature and you try to draw out of what he's written a systematic theology, it doesn't work. Um, we don't know for certain his original intent when he wrote a, a piece. And also when you have little scattered snippets 
of comments laying around, it's very difficult to form a, a complete or a cohesive uh, picture of theology. Nevertheless, uh, I, I think it would be fair to say there are at least three areas where scholars have identified things that, that you and I would probably say are, are, not, are not on the mark. They're not a, 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 a understanding of theology like you and I might have. Let me just share those with you because they're kind of interesting. The first one is out of the book, The Great Divorce, and also one called Letters to Malcolm. Um, he, he writes a, a bit of a, a waiting place, writes about a, a bit of a waiting place. It seems that he believes in some kind of interim step between earth and heaven, uh, almost like a, an understanding uh, of purgatory. Now, it's not fully developed. We're not certain what he really meant, but a good Bible scholar would probably want to pick that one apart. A second area that, that some question marks have come up about his theology have to do with his understanding of the inerrancy of Scripture, whether all of Scripture is without, uh, without flaw, without an error of any kind. There was a comment that he made on Matthew 24, uh, verse uh, 34, I think it is. It's where Jesus talks about that this generation will not pass away until these things become true. And we know that the next generation after uh, Jesus's life, the, the the prophecies that were being described in Matthew 24 did in fact not take place. In fact, they haven't yet. So um, he argued against that timeline and used that as kind of an example that here was a mistake in the Bible. It's not an error. It is a difficult passage. It's kind of fun to try to pick it apart, but I don't believe it's a, an evidence of the error of Scripture. And lastly, the third thing I draw to your attention is that he seemed to say in a couple of different places that that it's possible for someone to come to saving knowledge um, through the example of of, uh, of imperfect representations, if you will, of Jesus Christ that might show up in other religions. But I have to say, um, and I'm not a scholar of C.S. Lewis, but I've read a lot, there is so much that's unrelenting and persuasive in all of his teaching, both by implication uh, in his allegories and through direct and implicit uh, apologetic literature that he no doubt understood and taught that no one comes to Christ or comes to the terms of the Lord through, without coming through Christ. There is no saving faith apart from trusting in Jesus. I think he might have been thinking about, maybe musing a little on, um, passages like the one in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, where it, it, it makes a reference to the fact that God has set or imprinted eternity into the hearts of men, almost like um, a, a precursor that would move you forward towards ultimately a saving faith. I don't know exactly what he was referring to, but I, but I am confident that he was not uh, violating or not agreeing with, uh, you know, John 14, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. The, the bottom line here is that, you know, C.S. Lewis was very clear about who Aslan is. And he was also very clear about the vast majority 
of theological issues that he thought deeply about. Um, but sometimes trying to pick apart a theological puzzle from little bitty pieces in 40 major works uh, is tough. And remember, when we started this study, when I talked about sojourners, I used that phrase that Piper used. They were faithful, they were flawed, and they were fruitful. This may be one of those areas where there's a little bit of flaw in our sojourner. For me, none of that tarnishes at all the amazing glow that comes out of this 20th century writer and thinker and imaginative uh, visionary that you and I know as C.S. Lewis. He is an extraordinary individual. What's funny about his writing, though, is his first love was Icelandic sagas or Nordic tales. He loved the pagan Celtic mysticism and the folklore of it all. In fact, that's how his friendship with J.R. Tolkien began. Tolkien was a big fan of Icelandic sagas, and they started a little study group. And uh, uh, C.S. Lewis got invited, jumped in with both feet. He loved that genre of literature. But soon that group uh, expanded, and its focus moved away from those, those Nordic sagas, and they began to call themselves the Inklings. Now, that word inkling just means those who dabble in ink. And uh, this group of writers, uh, right there in Oxford, uh, met for 17 years. And uh, all total, there were 19 different writers that met, and they met by invitation only. When they came together uh, on uh, Thursday nights, they read each other's papers. So one would be writing something, he'd come and read several chapters, and then they would sit there and discuss it very vigorously. They were hungry, as one writer wrote it, for ra rational opposition. They wanted someone to say, well, that doesn't make as much sense. I, I don't get that. How did that tie with that? Um, you're, you're, you're trailing off here, your language there. They felt like they needed the presence of others to, to help keep them writing. And they considered themselves to be resonators, fellow writers who could provide support for each other. There's a great book called Bandersnash that uh, uh, talks about all of the creative elements their group uh, made to each other, and therefore their works were, were even better. Uh, the, the imprint that C.S. Lewis made on Tolkien and, and, and the reverse uh, is astonishing. They met those uh, Thursday nights, every Thursday night, in Lewis's university quarters. And it's funny, about six or seven of them would come together. Like I said, they'd read their paper, and then the discussions would begin. And they would last hours. Um, those discussions were pretty formal, if you will. No one interrupted each other. There was a very scholarly element to it. But on Tuesday nights, they met at the Eagle and the Child, or what they called the Bird and the Baby. And those were uh, less formal uh, times with lots of laughter and fun and uh, left the serious sessions for on Thursday night. In addition to his teaching, which, you know, was accomplished every day, his preaching in churches and missions uh, agencies, his speaking on the radio that we've already talked about, he definitely wrote prolifically. He produced his first actual published novel when he was 12 years old. And he followed that with some 40 different volumes of work. 
and I, and I just want to impress on you the variety. There was there was poetry, there were short stories, there were novels, there there were uh, studies in philosophy, studies in medieval and and Renaissance literature and history. It, one writer said that um, one biographer said that that um, Lewis wrote so much that he occasionally forgot the titles to his books. I would recommend, if you're new to C.S. Lewis, that you read his his memoirs. Uh, it's in called it's called uh, "Surprised by Joy," and it will give you an inkling into the kind of oh, a little play on words there, inkling. It'll give you uh, an insight into the kind of guy C.S. Lewis was. But he's probably uh, in the scholarly world most known uh, as a world class apologist. He could take. A, 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 a snippet, a concept of theology, and 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 write in a way that you could understand it, and with but with power. Let me mention *Mere Christianity* uh, as a foundational kind of book for anyone that begins reading C.S. Lewis. He's got a marvelous book called *Miracles*, uh, one called *Problem with Pain*. All of those are apologetic uh, pieces of literature. But, but most of us know C.S. Lewis uh, for his writing of children's literature. Um, one of his contemporaries wrote, her name is uh, Ruth Pitter, she said this about his ability to write meaningful children's literature. His whole life was oriented and motivated by an almost unique, persisting child's sense of glory and nightmare. And when you think about it, the ability to write with the passion, uh, children's literature that really speaks to adults, that, that doesn't come easy. Um, he once said that the value of the myth, remember he means story, the value of the story is that it takes all the things we know and it restores to them the rich significance which has been hidden by the veil of familiarity. He can take a child's toy, a cupboard, um, a dream, uh, a sword, and, and, and bring out of that intense value. He would say that the world's myth, the world's story, the shadows of the light of God brooding over man. I love that phrase. God gives stories as light is brooding over men. The light of God absolutely Brian Shelley through all of his stories. Um, I have many favorites of C.S. Lewis. At one point I thought, oh, I, I think I pretty much read most of his stuff. And then I got a list of it and realized it's probably about a third of the way through. But that brings us to my question. So what do we do? So what? So C.S. Lewis is an amazing man of God, an amazing communicator, thinker, imaginative, uh, bold writer, uh, and, 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 uh, and man of God. What, what do we do with that? Well, I, I thought about that a lot, and I came to the conclusion. Simply put, we need to go find some more that are like that. And you say, well, sure, how did I do that? I mean, I have a small circle of influence 
is how can I be part of an effort to find more C.S. Lewis's? Well, here's what you do. Every adult, every adult within the sound of my voice has, a, has an inventory of children in your life. They're your children. They're your friend's children. You have grandchildren. You're involved in children's ministries at church. You, uh, you have other places in your neighborhood when you come in contact with, with children. Here's the, the thing we need to do. We need to ask a question ourselves the time we see those kids. And here's the question. How can I help them become everything God intended them to be? How can I help them become everything God intended them to be? Now, no, that's not a question. How can I help them be a better ball player? That's not a question. How can I help them get in a more prestigious college or university? It's not a question of how can I make her a better dancer? There's nothing wrong with going to every every uh, dance recital of your children or grandchildren. Nothing wrong with providing cleats and a glove for 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 uh, your young one to be involved in some sort of sports. Nothing in the world wrong with that. But here's the issue. It's just not the highest goal. The highest goal is to help them become what God intended them to be. How do you do that? How do you spur them on? How do you influence them? How do you draw out of them the gifts that God has given them? It, it doesn't involve money. It might involve some effort, and it definitely involves some time. They need to see you invest in them. Invest your experiences. Invest your mistakes. Talk about the redemptions that have happened in your life. Let them benefit from all the, the twists and turns. Because when they see the twists and turns in your life, and you keep pointing them back to Christ and what he has for them, they're going to be in a position to march after that. Start praying very specifically for the children in your life. And, and pray the words of Ephesians chapter 1, verse number 18. It, and and here, here, here's a, a paraphrase of it. I pray that the eyes of their understanding would be open and that they would be enlightened in order that they may know the hope to which he has called them. Encourage young people to read, to think, to write, to use their imagination, to build, to design, to draw, to paint. If nothing else, get a set of the Chronicles of Narnia and read it with them. Guys, our culture desperately needs men and women with these kinds of amazing skills and, and, and a passion to communicate. God will give the gifts. You and I just need to be available to spur them along. Make a point. I, I, am, I am saying make a point for for uh, the next few days to look in the faces of the children you have influence over and and ask that question how can i help them to become everything god intended them to be and maybe maybe they'll grab a pen or probably a keyboard and uh, influence them 
the next step for the cause of Christ. And lastly, before I let you go today, I just want to say, don't walk away from this teaching without a desire to, to pursue C.S. Lewis. He has so much to share with all of us. And like I said, if nothing else, go pick up a copy of the Chronicles of Narnia. I promise you that this sojourn will change your life. Thanks for coming. Uh, it would have been so fun without you. And if you enjoyed the teaching, go ahead and share it on your own Facebook. Send it out to somebody else that might uh, come in and uh, start a love affair with C.S. Lewis.